An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, we're pleased to have as our special guest, Rosanna Landis-Weaver. Rosanna is the author of As You Sow Foundation's annual 100 Most Overpaid CEOs Report. But Rosanna is much more than just one of the foremost executive compensation experts. She's a sharp-eyed observer of American capitalism, who has had more than three decades of corporate governance experience. She's also a former editor of her local paper and the author of the book, quote, Weaving the Family, which examines the age-old question of nature or nurture, or more specifically, genetics, environment, and personality from the point of view of an adoptive parents. In other words, Rosanna has both brain and heart, a perfect outside-in guest. Welcome, Rosanna. What a lovely introduction, John. Thank you so much. I'm very honored to be here today. So what's your origin story? We find that interesting people have had interesting lives. You've worked for unions, proxy advisor, editing paper. How'd you become the person you are professionally and personally? Well, I think maybe a key fact and and a slightly unusual one is that I grew up Mennonite. And in fact, I still consider myself to be Mennonite. My worldview was shaped early on by that, by the idea of being in the world, but not of it, by the idea of being comfortable with nonconformity, by a call for justice and a comfort with sort of a prophetic voice and, you know, lots of other things. You know, there's a simple living element. So I I was easily outraged by CEO pay. It was a natural fit that way. I'm also the daughter of a factory worker who worked in a union. And so I am strongly in support of unions because I saw what it meant for my family. My father didn't graduate from college, but all three of his children did. He was the only earner in the family for most of those years. And I just imagine a high school graduate now sending three kids to college based on their earnings is is a stretch. So I'm very grateful for that. I went to a Mennonite high school and a Mennonite college. And I, I might not have had as many ideas of what possible careers were as other contemporaries, women especially. It was sort of Nurse or teacher were, were sort of the, the things I grew up with. No one ever said, hey, you might want to think about law school. I don't think they actually even said it to the guys. And I'm really grateful for that in retrospect because I didn't become a lawyer, but all the interests and the abilities found their way out. I came out of college, worked in Mennonite Voluntary Service for United Campuses to Prevent Nuclear War. And I like to say there was no nuclear war on our on our watch. And couple of other nonprofits, knew I wanted to go back, went back to Notre Dame for American studies, which was so much fun. Like if I could be a perpetual student, right? But very little application to the outside world other than it did probably improve my my writing and research skills. I was out of college. I had a master's. 
I was in D.C. and working as a temp. And I got a temp job at the Teamsters Union, got hired on in their safety and health department doing uh, administrative kind of stuff, and saw an internally posted ad for the corporate affairs department. And actually, Bill Patterson reached out to me. Bill Patterson headed the corporate affairs department at the Teamsters before he went to the AFL-CIO. I was hired and it was it was really magical. It was just like I had found my place. So worked there for many years. And then IRC, Investor Responsibility Research Center, and then Institutional Shareholder Services. You know, I'm not sure your readers do or listeners, that the reason all of these organizations were in D.C. is because you had to physically walk down to the SEC building to get those no action letters. Up until fairly recently, I don't think I'm that old, but, you know, I remember how how that was and, and the slow unfurling of Edgar. So anyway, I took some time while I worked at CTW Investment Group and then family things got a little intense. I took some downtime where I worked as the editor for the paper and I wrote a book <laughs> and and taught English as a second language, which was also very fun. And then I saw this job at As You Sow, and it was just the right mix. It was the in-the-weeds compensation knowledge, but also a real desire to, to disrupt the broken model of compensation. So the rest is history. Let's just talk about executive compensation generally. I mean, investors, policymakers, pundits, television and talking heads have been complaining about runaway executive compensation literally for as long as I can remember. <laughs> so, so let me ask you a macro question. Why should anyone not in the business care? Is I mean, you can be upset as you were with a Mennonite sensibility, but is it just voyeurism over other people's wealth? How does such large largesse, if you will, um, in executive compensation really affect the economy, society, and everyday people? We have been complaining about it for a long time, but it was much less when we started complaining about it. Income inequality is a, a very destructive force. Almost every social ill occurs more when there is a higher level of income inequality. That's mental illness, life expectancies, uh, rate of imprisonment, all, infant mortality, alcohol addiction. There's like all kinds of studies that, that show the dangers of income inequality. And I think as a thinking person, as a, an involved citizen in a democracy, I think it's a really important thing to think about. I think it's actually inherently dangerous to democracy to have too high a level of income inequality. One of the things, now you're right, the CEO pay is not that many CEOs, it, but it feeds into it. It is probably perhaps the most tangible form because it is public. We know how much it is. And shareholders get to vote on it. And that's fairly new. That's why we started this project, as you saw, to look at shareholder votes. And I think it also inflates other pay down the road. I mean, and you will see that at any time you open a proxy statement. If the CEO gets a ton, everybody else on the NEOs, the named executive officers, also is highly paid. If the CEO's pay is more modest, their pay is more modest. But then outside the organization, then you have hospital presidents, nonprofit presidents, university presidents saying, well, well I am as smart as they are, and I should get as much often rally without understanding the difference between guaranteed and equity-based compensation. So that, that further blurs it. But I often think about when, when if and when, if, there, if things get bad enough that, that they come with pitchforks, they're not going to find you know, Larry Ellison or, or Bezos. Those guys will be out on a yacht somewhere. They will find the 
upper middle class people that remain with who have maybe six figure incomes. And I think we need to address, I mean, for for our own self-interest and also because it's the right thing to do. So you're critical of income inequality and obviously with pay ratios between U.S. corporate CEOs and their workforce. And, and your most recent report shows that the CEOs of 11 companies, I'll name them, Aptiv, Paycom, Chipotle, Nike, Activism, General Electric, Skyworks, Norwegian Cruise Lines, and Davida all made literally more than a thousand times the annual compensation of their average employee. And in one sense, that's shocking. And you make an argument for income inequality being disruptive. But isn't it also sort of a reflection of American culture? We pay star athletes, actors, and singers millions or even hundreds of millions when most athletes and actors can't make a living doing that at all. So is there something about the American belief system that promotes a winner-take-all inequality? If some super rich dude wants to start a team and pay players an outrageous fee, that is to some extent up to them. I have issues with that I have thoughts about taxation, but that that's them. But at a public company, which is operating with its shareholders expecting to gain retirement benefits, you know, eventually from them. I think that's really different. There are things in American culture, but they've become more extreme. Now, Winner Take All Society was a book that was out, you know, when I first started this. And I think about how things have changed even since then. And again, I don't, I don't see that as a positive. The other thing that I want to talk about, I mean, I'm not sure like sports players, like I would happily talk to you about how minor league players deserve a lot more and all of that stuff. But there's a couple of real distinctions too. For CEOs, there's no, the skills are not as transferable. Like every basketball player is competing against every other basketball player. Whereas a CEO of a widget firm isn't going to become the CEO of a tech firm. And there's a lot of misapplication of peer groups, as you very well know, as if there's direct competition. That's one of the things that has very much inflated pay over time. So sports stars have more measurable metrics. They have stats that are measured identically. And uh, they even have, a, like, the only thing that's more tricky to measure is than individual skill is, is team contribution, right? And baseball takes a shot at that with the win above replacement. So again, I don't think CEOs are comparable. I think CEOs are mostly getting as much as they can. And again, it's, it's a public company. They have taken on all the advantages of being in the public markets and shareholders have a say on this. Let's take another sacred cow on our side of this argument. Um, we've known each other for more than a quarter of a century. So, so we'll have a, a just among us conversation. We'll ignore the hundreds or thousands of people who listen to this podcast. Um, <laughs> and let's turn the mirror on ourselves as investors. You said we get to vote on executive compensation and say on pay. First, and you do go into this in the report, lazy or inattentive investors allow bad pay practices to fester. But I think more importantly, don't we as institutional investors bear some of the responsibility for the actual structural issues which have accelerated the inequality level of the executive compensation? I mean, you talked about peer groups, but that exists because we said disclose pay and put in peer groups. And we thought... <laughs> Oh, well, that, you know, that will make people reduce their pay. But in fact, it allowed CEOs and executive 
compensation consultants to benchmark everyone. And it became a very efficient ratchet. I want to earn in the top quartile or whatever right. to the growth of executive compensation role. We said pay CEOs in stock or at least stock related compensation supposedly to align our interests with theirs only to find that it was a great way to boost absolute levels of CEO pay beyond anyone's previous imagination. I mean, look at Elon Musk's Tesla mega grants. And it was often due to macro stock market issues, not CEO accomplishments. And it doesn't increase alignment. So in other words, at least some of investors, our suggestions for fixing the problem have made it worse. What makes you think we can get it right in the future? Are there structural fixes and why won't they have similar unintended consequences? <laughs> That's a great question. And you raise a really good point. I don't think there's a magic bullet. I, I am very distrustful of people who say this is the quick and easy way to address something. I think for problems that are this intricate, there are going to be several elements. And one of them, I think, is is Sion Pay. For a few years ago, there was a lot of talk of did, did Sion Pay fail? Because pay did not go down, right? A significant number of shareholders were voting in favor of compensation. And so some compensation consultants said that means shareholders are fine with this. We're seeing much more nuanced voting, which is great. I think investors at least initially failed Sion Pay and are getting more uh, involved. I agree with you. The unintended consequences is is a huge component. I worked with Carol Bowie at IRC, and she used to talk about like if you squeeze a balloon somewhere, it pops out somewhere else. So if you, you try to address a single element through a shareholder proposal or something, it pops out somewhere else. The overall having a vote on pay, I think, has the potential over time. We'll see to move pay down a little bit. I'm guardedly hopeful. Again, I think it's it's linked to a lot of things. I think it's linked to our tax system and everywhere else, but we all have our own different roles to play and mine is CEO pay. So that's what I focus on. Let me just follow up on that for a second. Is part of the problem that we, we have determined that we want compensation to be formulaic. We have annual, plans and long-term incentive plans. And in general, they're set three years in advance. And we never want the people on the board to exercise up ex post judgment upward. So there's a bias to setting the formulas to be generous to begin with so they don't have to. Now, that's not the way normal people are compensated. Exactly. Normal <laughs> people, the boss sits down, decides how good a year that person's had and says, so you're going to get paid X. And I once was in a group of institutional investor compensation experts. And I said, you know what? I think the ideal San pay resolution would be allowing the board compensation committee to actually be responsible and accountable so that instead of these reams and reams of structural reports that you can right. read, but most people can't. And report, I don't like to. Right. No one likes to. It, it should say, we, the members of the compensation committee, have an aggregate total of, of 75 years of performance management. We evaluated our CEO on a number of criteria, including current profitability, building a pipeline of products and services that will go into the market over the next five years, managing the workflow, capital allocation, whatever it is. We've decided to pay the CEO X millions of dollars. 
If you like that, please vote for this compensation report. If you don't, please vote against this as a member of the compensation committee sincerely. In other words, real accountability, though exercised in a less formulaic manner. And when I've suggested that in the past, some people get it, but other people in our world, in the institutional investor world, said, but how would we judge that? So my question is, do we actually have a sclerotic system where analysts and investors are investing in having a dysfunctional structural system just so they can analyze it and criticize it, as opposed to <laughs> maybe we should just scrap the damn thing and pay CEOs the way everyone else in the world gets paid? <laughs> I've heard other people say, you know, make this. Michael Dorf makes this case and a lot of other people. Just let's give them a big salary and then some equity and then you know that's that's all right and i think there's some merit to a lot of these sort of thought experiments i just worry about how that transition would work and what would happen over the course of that it's an interesting idea one of the things to bear in mind is that more or less since pay per, pay for performance became this mantra we had a, a pretty good stock market right so executives for the most part, have done really well because of the macro conditions. Even if they've had a couple of bad years, things have been on upward trend. I think if we ever see a bear market, and particularly a prolonged bear market, then we'll see companies themselves decide that they very much want to re-examine the pay-for-performance idea. And changes, you know, may happen. Okay, so we've had the big structural and philosophic conversations. Let's get to your report. You've done this for the last eight years how do you determine who's overpaid? Who are they? What are some of the, give us one or two egregious examples. And to be fair, who are the CEOs who are relative bargains? The methodology is all laid out in the report. Last year, Paycom was our most overpaid CEO because as you know, uh, Chad Richardson had total compensation of 211 million, right? Uh, Norwegian Cruise Lines was number two. That was the complete opposite of of a company sharing experiences right it was the in an industry that was struggling where employees were laid off the ceo got a special award and and that rightly infuriated shareholders and actually that's another positive i would say is that a relatively few companies took actions that completely insulated executives from the downturn because early in the season there were some very high votes against and i i think that was restraining so we've been doing this for eight years, and I have a Excel table that's that covers the multiple years. And I looked at it, and of the S and P five hundred, pretty close to three hundred companies have been on there one year or another. There are some that have been on there many years, and I think those are interesting companies. Again, Discovery, Comcast, IBM, GE. We had GE on well before the latest downturns, but that means there are two hundred companies that have never been on it, and I don't generally tend to look too deeply into those companies, but I, I have identified a few um, and looked at a few proxies last week. One is is Costco, which is always my example of what I call a high road company. The CEO pay is is modest. They treat employees well. They treat customers well. Shareholders have done very well, right? It's, it's a win-win-win all around. The um, total compensation for the CEO there was 8.7 million, which is plenty right? That's not not a bad figure. And and then the other NEOs made much less. The 
line that I found in the proxy statement that I really thought was interesting because we've talked about peer groups already. They say that they they do have a peer group they look at for general reference, but they say the committee did not use the comparable company data to set midpoints or other specific quantitative comparisons of executive compensation. They look at it, they evaluate it, but they don't say, oh, I must be paid more because this guy is paid more. Another company that really works hard to do it right is MSCI. The salary is a million, which we're seeing a lot of salaries creep up because of the change of 162M. Um, the total pay is 10.3 million. And some of the performance shares are five years, which again, rather than three, and they often require a one-year post-vesting mandatory holding period. So they're doing a lot of things right. Let me ask you a question, because you said you looked at um, the 200 that had never appeared. Many of our listeners are financial advisors, RIAs, institutional investors. Is there any evidence that companies which overpay their CEOs multiple years, according to your methodology, perform differently than those, for instance, that never appear on the list? There is some. I mean, we've reported this in our in our report itself. And again, hip investors are they're the number crunchers, and they made an analysis of you know if you invested in this bucket versus this bucket, you would do better. You know, a lot of the folks who have been, I think, leaders in in voting against pay use it as a red flag. Use it as a this is the best way we can tell if board of directors is really engaged, what the relationship is between the CEO and the board. I think that's a good way to look at it, too. What's improved in executive comp since you've been involved? What hard practices have been eliminated? My personal favorite is gross-ups because I had a front-page seat to that. And gross-ups are your example of unintended consequences just perfectly, right? The <laughs> idea was that golden parachutes were getting too high. So they- Just to find your terms, golden parachutes, gross-ups, et cetera. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, well, golden parachutes are the uh, the severance packages that departing executives got. And some who left, especially in the 90s, got big ones and they became very big stories. There was this, you know, arcane piece of legislation written in that was going to have a, an excise tax, a higher level of taxation on any amount that exceeded what, what the IRS determined to be a, an excessive parachute. I think it's three times the five-year W-2 average. So that's still a very, very nice parachute. I would love to get three times my W-2 average when I leave my job, but I, I won't. Anyway, the taxation idea, great idea. Then some compensation consultant said, well, you know, these executives have to pay this tax. And why don't we offer to pay the tax? So we're going to gross up. We're going to increase the plan to cover the taxes. And then it became to cover the taxes on the taxes. And eventually, at the height of it, you were seeing situations where companies were paying more for the gross up almost than for the severance. And it was just, it had no, no positive need for shareholders. Those are mostly gone or at least written out. We do see companies that adopt them at the last minute, but they used to be very, very prevalent and they are much less prevalent. And, and I think some of the perks have, have been reduced. Yeah, I, I think there have been positive changes. And, and the other thing is there's just a much higher awareness. When you go into a, a gathering and say you work on trying to limit CEO pay, you, people like that a lot. <laughs> you know, If you just go and say, I work in corporate governance, you might not get the same response. I'll, I'll have to remember that the next time I'm at a bar or something. Um, 
the one that I loved was Golden Coffins. Um, oh, yeah. This was um, if I died and I were the CEO, my estate would get, you know, three times or whatever in, in paid to the estate. Now, the reason that Golden Parachutes existed in theory was to prevent the CEO from competing. It's hard to compete when you're dead, right? <laughs> and so um, at least those have gone away. So I think that's a good one. Let's move on to something a little different, a little more personal. You wrote a yep. book that I mentioned, Weaving a Family, Genetics, Identity, and Adoption. The book examines you know, nature and nurture from your own perspective as an adoptive mother. So first, what made you decide to become an adoptive parent? And secondly, what motivated you to write the book? For the reasons that many did. We, we were in the infertility industrial complex, as I like to call it. We went in the first time saying, we're really open to adoption. And they were like, no, no, you don't need to adopt. But we were not as interested in following the technology as far as, as some people were for as long as some people were. And, and also at the time that we were facing these choices, international adoption was a really workable choice that's become a little bit more difficult. As I mentioned before, at a certain point, family became sort of a lot. It was actually the year, the fall that I had one child that was beginning high school, one child that was beginning junior high, and one child that was beginning kindergarten. And I was like, I can't do these three school transitions and continue to work at, you know, even 30 hours a week at that point for us. So I, I flat out quit. And I had, you know, lunch with Nell Minow, who's, again, someone we know, who sets the best example of, of a life where you can do lots of different things. You know, she's a movie editor and a publisher. Doesn't take away from her corporate governance. She can do all those things. And I mentioned, this is something we thought about. She's like, oh, do it. I'll publish it. So then it was sort of an assignment, but it was great. I read a lot of books. I mean, what got me started on thinking about all this was my personal experience. We are nerdy people, my husband and I, and we had these athletes in our family that was, wow, you know, a, a different culture to get used to. And the other one that I thought about a lot was that, and my kids, by the way, I have to always preface this. I love them. They are the best three kids in the world. So that, that goes, I mean, that's just absolutely from the bottom of my heart. I'm so proud of them and they've done, they're all just amazing. But the thing I was noticing around that time is that none of my kids were big readers. Now I read all the time and I read every article I got my hand on, on how to raise a reader. Right. And they all say, have lots of books in the house, model this, all this, all this kind of thing. When you start digging into a lot of parenting studies, they don't control for genetics. They, they say, oh, this kid is a big reader. Let's find out what his parents do. Oh, his parents have a lot of books in the house. So obviously, you know, if we put a lot of books in this house, that will make this child a reader. And it, it just doesn't work that way. We all have things that come easier or more difficult to us. And, and often, I mean, again, I don't think there's anything intrinsically better about enjoying reading mystery novels than there is about enjoying playing baseball. It's just we, we have these ideas sometimes. So what are the takeaways? What did you, what did you learn? Yeah. And are they applicable to both biologically related families as well as families with adoptive children? 
I, I absolutely think they are. I think they're also applicable to ourselves, right? I mean, again, really doing a lot of reading at the time to the things I intuitively expected that, that certain things come easier to others. That was very well affirmed. But I think I saw more proof of genetic links. And I think there is a much higher genetic link to many traits than, than maybe even than we would like, right? We'd like to almost believe our children were blank slates or that we were blank slates. And I want to be really clear here because I think people are, this is kind of a third rail kind of situation. Saying that that's true for individuals is not true for a group of people anywhere. And I think because people have made these unmerited points about, you know, races or whatever, that's tarred genetics for some people. It's something that people have find a difficult time talking about for that reason. But when you read these psychologists, I mean, I quote one psychologist who said he was he was dragged kicking and screaming into the idea that some people are just temperaments are just different, you know, introversion, extroversion, all things like that. And I think this is where it can help us be easier on ourselves, because I think when we try too hard to be something where we are not, it, it causes a lot of pain. And I, I think both as adoptive parents and genetic parents, letting your children discover their strengths, encouraging their strengths, not forcing them to go against their strengths. There are different kinds of smart. And when you've been around a while, you, you see that. I think we do a disservice as a society to overemphasize one kind versus a lot of the other kinds of emotional intelligence, spatial intelligence, all kinds of different things that people can be good at. What's exciting to you right now? What are you passionate about? So I love politics. It's an exciting time to love politics. Exhausting, but exciting. I don't know if I'm excited about, but I'm I'm on the board of uh, the newspapers that I, I wrote, and I was uh, one of the editors for the Heights for Life and Times after I could no longer afford to keep doing something that I enjoyed and had to make money, I stayed on as a board member. And I think, boy, every corporate governance expert should be on a couple of nonprofit boards because it really does give you a different perspective. Um, so we, we have actually found a model that more or less works. That's a, a combination of, uh, we're not, it's a nonprofit and we take some money from the city and we do some ads and we get some contributions and two other cities nearby college park and laurel are now joined us so now that's why we're streetcar suburbs it's never just heights for life and times but that's that's been exciting let's finish with some short questions and answers how do you relax reading twitter <laughs> gardening and in the summer i go into the pool i love being outdoors actually we have a backyard that i love so that's that's very important to me you mentioned your kids are athletes and play baseball. Are you a baseball fan? Oh, yeah. I've I've become one. Baseball is the best sport for English majors. There's baseball novels and lots of nuance. And yes, I've be, I'm, totally, I'm totally a Nats fan. Once you've followed a team to an unlikely World Series win, you are always going to follow that team. And I think unlikely World Series wins are the best. So that was that was a high point for our family. What music do you listen to? Um, eclectic. I, I, like everybody else, I was really taken with, uh, Joni Mitchell's concert appearance. So then I started listening to her again and got, um, led to Carol King's Tapestry, which I hadn't listened to in a long time. What, what an amazing album. I also saw, uh, Brandy Carlisle and the Indigo Girls last week. And those, those were fantastic. Both of them are, are fan, really great. You mentioned you're a reader. What are you reading right now? 
the fiction book I'm reading right now is um, Amor Told, The Lincoln Highway, which a lot of people are reading. It's just wonderful. Uh, it It's almost Dickensian. I feel like somebody from any point in time could enjoy this book in that way. I recently finished a fun fiction one was The Vixen. I, I like Frances Prose. She's very clever and witty and underappreciated. But the one I really wanted to mention was the nonfiction one I read, which was uh, The Premonition, A Pandemic Story, which I think does have applications for corporate governance and, and organizations. Uh, I love everything by Michael Lewis, but I would encourage everyone to read that one. Last question. If you could magically speak into everyone's ears, what would you tell them? That everything is going to be all right. That over the long term of history, we have been in difficult places before. And the human spirit is amazing. I don't know if I always believe that everything is going to be all right, but I, that's what I would like to hear. <laughs> and that's what I would like to tell people. <laughs> Fair enough. Our guest today on Outside In has been Rosanna Landis-Weaver. As you can hear, very interesting combination of a Mennonite background combining with a sense of justice, deep analytical ability, and uh, a hopeful out output. Um, you can call me anytime, Rosanna, and tell me everything. <laughs> I'd like to hear that. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Just a pleasure. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John Lukonik, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor Ohingasa, John Lukumnik executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.